0: The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One.
1: Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and
2: Dexter at Total Wine and More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rose. Many bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too.
3: My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles, with extra whipped cream
1: and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low
0: prices. Cheers!
1: My name is Matt Perez. My name is Satchel Drakes. And this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Matt. Hey, Satchel. How's it going, man? It's going all right. It's going all right. All right. Yeah, Yeah. man. The summer weather's gone. We're finally in fall. I I love fall. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It's nice, nice balanced weather. Mm -hmm. What what, what I'm curious to know is, and I I have to ask you to prepare yourself for a very, very polarizing question. Oh yeah. Okay. That has to do with this new fall season. Mm -hmm. Are you a pumpkin spice latte person? I'm not. You're not. I like the idea of it. I don't like it. You see. You're on the safer end of this bill because I'm so about it, and I know the internet's gonna have its way with me mm-hmm. for being that basic. <laughs> I find pumpkin spice lattes to be amazing, but uh, I think part of it isn't necessarily the the drink itself because it's just mm-hmm. processed cinnamony nonsense. Yeah, but it's been around forever, and I guess it's kind of one of those things where approaching fall holiday season, like. Maybe at some point in like college, I just like had one, and now I just commemorate this season of coziness with a warm cup of artificially flavored <laughs> pumpkin goodness. I can see that. I could totally and, see uh, that. So, what is it for you? Is it does it just not taste good for you, or it tastes like, like cleaner a little bit? Um, but I do. Fair. It's a thing of like I want to like it.
4: It's pumpkin spice. It's like it's fall. Yeah, and I love fall, and it like. There's all those memories attached to it, but like no, no, absolutely. <laughs> I not.
1: think at this point it's probably it's probably a combination of the memification and the romanticization <laughs> of pumpkin spice lattes. But but on that note, on that sort, on this feeling of sort of I don't know, the, you know, fall and the holidays in general, sort of being upon us. Um, what do you what what what, what comes to mind when you think about like Christmas? Video games. Video games, really? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> video games
4: and, like, family. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. my brother. No, that's good. no, you don't
1: have to do that. If video games is the first and your family is on the curb, that's totally cool.
4: It's totally getting the video game and then going and playing it with my brother there oh my you go. gosh that's perfect we that's put, perfect. put it perfect. together so <laughs>
1: the same no you know what the same thing is I have, I have the exact same thing when i think of christmas i think about the excitement of video games which is weird because what is our christmas now we're we're old dudes now yeah we don't get anything <laughs> i mean i ask for a bottle of bullet bourbon and that's kind of it you know like mm-hmm. do you get do you look forward to i try to like ridiculous? make a
4: list and i'm like i don't know it was like a you, book or how, something? you make
1: a list now in your <laughs> 20s <laughs> So, I try to make a list. It's okay. usually
4: just like, I don't know, I could buy it myself, but <laughs> sure, let's do it. Like- sure.
1: All right. So imagine with me, go back in the time machine with me to 1993. Oh, okay. It's three. Christmas. You're looking underneath the tree. At least I'm looking underneath the tree, and I see a big old box. First thing coming to mind, game console, mm-hmm, right? mm hmm this was the year that I received a Sega Genesis. Oh, nice. did, did you get a, Did you have a Sega Genesis? I had a Super NES. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> you know, you could just stand over there in the corner over there. I'm um, sorry. No, I'm sorry. It's totally fine. <laughs> I had a Sega Genesis. I didn't even get the experience of having the big box. I, I, I had a smaller box. I was like, I'm gonna earn this, right? So, like, I opened a smaller box. And, oh my gosh! The first world privilege right now is just like <laughs> out of control. <laughs> but I opened up. <laughs> I opened up the smaller box and I saw. A, I got a controller for the oh, Genesis. So I was like, All right, well, we know now what's yeah. going on. Slash, 2020 hindsight, mom and dad, you guys should have set that aside. But. but lessons learned uh, yeah lessons learned live and learn and um i got a sega genesis and the sega genesis was a monumental console sold over three million units it's in everybody's mind when you think about video game nostalgia officially retro um mine in particular came with sonic 2 Mm. um did you play sonic 2 much later in my life, much later. In okay, my cool. But you, but you played it. Okay. I played it. I played yeah.
4: it. I played uh, Sonic CD on the Windows ninety five computer.
1: Oh my gosh, me too. I had one of those. Like I was, it, I had the disc, the little CD ROM disc. Well, Absolutely. I guess that was the point of it, right? Mm. That was the whole gimmick. <laughs> that was a weird naming convention to name it the medium it's on, but whatever. Yeah. Um, for what, what were your favorite things about Sonic Sonic Two? About Sonic Two, Sonic CD as well. Yeah,
4: uh, it's weird. I have a weird relationship with it, man. Sonic oh CD? shoot! We're about to get problematic. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Start with the good. The good. Um, well, with Sonic CD, it's just like the colors and the sounds. That and... Trapper
1: Keeper aesthetic, yeah,
4: absolutely. <laughs> like I love like anything that reminds me of like the early '90s, like like weird that that cup. That's from the 90s that's, like, blue and red. Oh, with of, the little... I'm the, all up. I kind of just want to yeah, have yeah. that in my house. Like, right. Like a wallpaper. Um, yeah. And, like, like, Sonic definitely, like, has that cool, like, early 90s feel to it. Right. Um, but I really don't like running into spikes randomly as I'm going fast.
1: That's totally fair. <laughs> Would you believe there's a community of people that totally enjoyed that? <laughs> A a very big community. of people that enjoyed that. A very big community of people that enjoyed that. So, I mean, Sonic was obviously, like, an amazing title. I mean, when, uh, specifically, even just when Sonic 2 alone came out, we're talking about 400,000 copies sold in, like, the first week. And after that, like, 6 million across the world. And, I mean, this was just the second installment. Obviously, a lot of people play the first, the third, and the title kind of goes on for a while. Um, What were... Which, which titles were your favorite, considering, you know... I think... So, I played Sonic CD as a kid.
2: hmm
4: And I, I like, I, I, you know, I... I I'm trying to think. I think I still love it. Like I, th- okay. I, I, I really like that one. Um, I, th- I
1: think that that's poignant. That like your your favorite, the one that you enjoy, happens to be the one that's two D. Do you remember the Sonic titles that came out after the kind of two D era? Do I remember? <laughs> <laughs> how, how could I forget? <laughs> and what, what, did you have as positive an opinion of those? Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, as any kind of Sonic fans remember, and for the people who don't. Um, who, who who don't remember kind of what happened the, the the world of video games as we knew it transitioned into 3D because it became a consumer accessible technology to use polygons instead of sprites and with it uh, we got this design problem um, with the Sonic the Hedgehog series where they needed a way to reconcile this concept this mechanic of moving fast like all over a stage. Uh, in a 3D space instead of a 2D. And it's very different moving back and forth, left and right, versus any kind of direction along the Z-axis. And I think amongst the the evolution of other intellectual properties, uh, where they were sort of able to find other genres for them to fit inside of, Sonic had the biggest issue. So we had Sonic the werewolf, <laughs> Sonic swinging a sword, Sonic with guns. There's Sonic, uh, with guns. Uh, Sonic with guns. Sonic with guns. Uh, interspecies romance Sonic. Oh, Yes, <laughs> that's a thing. That's not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Hoverboards racing Sonic, uh, which wasn't that bad. Yeah. It was bad for the Kinect, though. We don't talk about the Kinect. She's, yeah, there's, we don't there's talk so about many her. things. She doesn't come around anymore. We don't talk anymore. about anymore. Yeah. She don't come around no more. And they were all equally problematic. Fishing. <laughs> yeah, Sonic. <laughs> was that a thing? Yeah, the first three days. Oh my games. God, are you serious? You're right. Yeah. Yeah, that was problematic. So... <laughs> Probably the only good installment since then was Sonic Generations, uh, which was, you know, it was a redemptive title. It was admittedly ideal, like, fanservice, And there's nothing wrong with fan service. Fan service is cool. Um, But it was mostly 3D remakes. And uh, there was really never a title since then that harkened back to the snappy 2D gameplay. I mean, there were some advanced titles in Sonic 4 air quotes I'm using right now, but they all kind of sucked. Did you get a chance to play Sonic Generations? Go, I didn't.
4: I, you know, it's one of those ones where, like, that's the thing. Like, my heart it was it was so far gone, right? <laughs> well, it was like, yeah, it's so far gone, but it's also like, um, it does look cool, though. Like, I right, it, it is like remakes of these old levels, but like, it feels like they did maybe enough with the 3D parts where it's like we we have this new mechanic that we're using that's not you like walking around and looking for things in the dirt kind of thing, which right. is like a thing you did. And then, right. Yeah. Oh, and then, like
1: you're talking about the whole knuckles thing and God. like, oh, that was yeah. a mess.
4: But yeah, it was definitely I was like this actually might make me want to get a Sonic game. I you know, <laughs> I'm not great with uh with keeping up with things, so uh, I'd never played it, but so
1: it, I'm not the only one who like in the Sonic Adventure like just didn't get I didn't come here to look for emeralds. What is going yeah. on? Like, I definitely
4: remember enjoying yeah so those games you played as like 10 characters which is so unnecessary just, That's let, right. me, just let me play as Sonic and the Sonic stages I think for the most part they're a little clunky a little bit because they're trying to em- emulate the old ones which are very flashy and, and right. everything's going crazy on the screen Right. tough to do that in a 3D environment but it was like almost there but then you know it I, was like I this think it's decent and then you play as Tails and you're like oh, right oh, and you're like alright
1: right, yeah I think it was physics. Do you think it was physics? Like, it's sort of like, here, I can go really fast, but I have to, like, walk through a mall and talk to this lady <sighs> over here. Why and, did like, I do that? It, it, they would send you through these, like, you'd have these speedy segments, and then it would switch to platforming, but you're falling off all the platforms because you're so, you're such a slippery, like, you're, yeah. you have banana peels for shoes. Mm-hmm. It was just. The camera, too, has to follow you. The which... camera, has, which was strange. <laughs> and really, Nintendo kind of nailed it with having, I mean, I mean, you can't really compare, like, Sonic to Mario. But in general, like, Nintendo created a, like, a controller that sort of operated as, like, a quick bug fix for shoddy cameras, which oh. was having yeah. the little C buttons where you mm-hmm. can kind of move around. Move the and, camera around. Yeah, in a kind of way, it was it was sort of like, yeah, we're going to get... It's almost like a bit of humility. Like, yeah, we're going to get this wrong. So, like, here you go. You can feel, like, the power's in your hands. At least it feels that way. Mm-hmm. It's um, also
4: think thing, like... Um See, we're going to get to this because I played yeah. Nintendo as a kid. Okay, go for it. <laughs> yes. Um, but, like, I, I remember, like, in the original Mario games, you can go very fast in those games. Yes. Um, the 3D ones, slow, like, with Super Mario 64, which is, like, the big revolutionary title, um, mm-hmm. it definitely slowed you down a bit. And you could explore, like, it like but it, it, it's still, like, you know, Mario is, like, in the center of the camera uh, yeah. of the screen. And also, when you are going fast, it's not, you know... It's very simple. Like you're sliding, and you have to move left and right a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, and not yeah. fall off the stage. Whereas, like Sonic, a lot of it is about like you hit a bumper and you go, right. and like,
1: and then sometimes <laughs> when you're going, you can just put the controller down and you're still going because yeah. it's actually a cutscene. Yeah,
4: exactly. Yeah, but that's like <laughs> such a yeah. It's like such a like strange integral part of it where it's like right. How do we adapt that to three? You know? Right.
1: Yeah. It's almost like they they needed it. Oh God, it's sounding. I'm, it's not good. <laughs> I'm telling more and more disappointed as I'm kind of realizing. So, what do you, what do you feel here? Here, so you're a Nintendo, Nintendo kid. What, what do you feel Nintendo did right in the transition of 3D? That it for for so for to keep it simple, like mm-hmm. you know, Super Super Mario, Super so like Super Nintendo Mario to Super Mario 64. Mm-hmm. Like
4: I think there is. Um I just said it and maybe I never thought about this too deeply, but maybe it is a thing of like they let you they slowed you down a little bit and they let you explore the stages. And I think Mario was kind of suited to do that. Mm. Um, you know, he's everyone says like Sonic is like the fast one, but it is like the old ones. He kind of I, I I now can run through them. Maybe that's right. Like, yeah. Uh, not how people usually approach it, but, like, you can just, like, go forward. Um, right. But it's the thing of, like, in those games, you can stop, and a lot of times you have to, like, methodically jump around, and, like, that's something I think you can adapt to 3D. And, again, like, they have stages where, you know, you have to basically have, like, 10 different missions or objectives um, in these stages, and, you know, each you can take your time through them, you can explore them a little bit, you can understand them better, yeah. whereas... um like, Sonic is, like, it's, it should feel, like, almost like an obstacle course. And in that sense, it's, like, we're going to throw you through it really quickly, and you have to, like, react very quickly. And if right. you don't, like, you, you're going to have a bad time. And uh, yeah. and I think that's, like, a different type of, you know, game that maybe they, they went for, like, let's do Super Mario 64. It's, like, maybe you should have done what I think they went like, maybe something like Prince of Persia Sands of Time is much more like an obstacle course that's, like... Uh, yeah slowly pulling apart and you have to like react quickly
1: yeah i think
4: that made sense yes i don't know
1: (laughs) i do no that sounds amazing and and you're right there's there's sort of like this weird there's it's almost like this weird trick where it's like oh mario moves in a lot of ways mario moves a lot faster than sonic and even in the in the retro games like you don't really have to move that fast with sonic because like with mario like Yeah, you may not be running, per se, the whole time, but there's a clock that's counting down. So there Mm. is a sense of urgency that you do have to finish Mm. things quickly. Meanwhile, with Sonic, the counter counts up seemingly infinitely, right? And there's no... There's also
4: the element of, like, the camera is so close to Sonic, where then everything is, like, accentuated. uh, And you're like, like, oh, my God, what's going on? Whereas, like, Mario, they pull it out a little bit, so it's like I can react quicker to things. And maybe that, like, creates... That's true. It's a different
1: type of flow, I guess. That's very, very true. No, no, no. I'm completely with you. Um, So we finally have a game that returns to form Mm -hmm. uh, with the Sonic that we remember. Enter Sonic Mania. Uh, There's this guy named Christian Whitehead. Uh, He was a Sonic kid who became an independent game developer, and he ultimately ended up to to move with to move and kind of work with and partner with Sega, um, but in a very limited capacity. So he remastered Sonic 1 and 2 and CD, um, our favorite, which I remember playing on, like, the iPad, and you can play it on, like, any iOS. I think he, like, the main port was, like, iOS and, like, I think Windows and and Mac and then Apple TV or whatever. Um, He worked on this prototype game while he was partnered with them called uh, Sonic Discovery. Now, he did that on his own, Um, And the idea was that it would pick up where the original Sonic trilogy left off. And it was supposed to be a spiritual successor. So um, with sort of like he presented it, ultimately, and with the blessing of Takashi Hizuka, I said that wrong probably, the the leader of the Sonic team, uh, Sega decided to develop this idea as a hybrid of both new levels and uh, a retrospective on some of the favorites that people have. So not exact remakes, but like close, right? Uh, Remixes. Yeah, remixes. There you go. (laughs) And the idea is that this would be branded as a collaboration between Sega and the fans. So Sega being about the people, which sounds really generous, but, I mean, let's be real. Sega was struggling, and they don't make hardware anymore. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) the overview of this game. You get to play a Sonic and Tails and Knuckles in the traditional 2D style. Um, It was developed to have graphical fidelity between... So, it's supposed to feel like Sega Genesis, but it can't have graphical fidelity that looks more advanced than Sega Saturn. Mm. So, they kind of had this true, like, you have to record, you have to, like, make it in this, like, retro way, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Which I thought was pretty cool. Um, Zone-wise, it's a combination of a sequel and a best of. Uh, they're remakes of, like, Green Hill Zone, Chemical Plant, Lava Reef, hydropolis all, all those kind of, like, really, like, good ones that people remember. And uh, there are these new stages that feel and sound like they belong to the old ones. Um, So we both had a chance to sort of play this title, and I think the big thing about it has sort of been, um, does this satisfy the nostalgia that we have for this title. You know what I mean? Like there's so many retrospectives on Sonic. There's so many retrospectives on the series and what it was supposed to do and how it did well and how it failed. And a lot of it's just fueled by nostalgia for this amazing thing mm-hmm. at this certain amount of time. And what's funny about this nostalgia in particular, because a lot of video games is about nostalgia, is that um it's about such a it's about it's really about three games. You know what I mean? Like there are some other games and stuff, but it's really about this small segment in time that Sega has really tried to hold on to and blow out and fail at. And this is their first like like populace approved success. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious to know what you what your experience was like with it, what it reminded you of that was cool, like
4: it's almost like the same thing of why like Sonic C D. It's like yeah, they they got like the music right. It reminds me of the '90s, and yeah. they got the the visuals right. They're like very they pop, and like there's a lot going on, on screen, and there's a lot of fidelity there, and like oh, that's really great. Yeah, um, it's definitely. And I was actually like engaged, and I'm like I'm actually curious. Um, it's like how how like you probably know better than me is like how much they remix these levels, but um, you know I was like engaged in it. There were still you know. There's little hiccups like I like <laughs> what is it, Chemical Plant Zone? That's probably yeah. from like Sonic Hedgehog Two. Yes, correct. Man, I don't like that one. Ooh,
1: really? <laughs> you know, I, I, interesting. I'm curious to know. I'm curious to know. I just like run into everything and then <laughs> and then
4: they do like the other thing is like uh, I know the original Sonic had a lot more like traditional platforming where you stop and you wait for a platform, like Yo, I just want to run. Like,
1: <laughs> or you stop because it's actually a fall into a cliff of death, and you keep going, and you just die. I think you <laughs> yeah, die, yeah. But yeah, it it, it was that
4: um, interesting, like aspect of like how much am I liking the new Sonic that's here, like what, or how much of it is uh, I'm playing an older game that you know reminds me of another an, another older game that I like. You know, like yeah. That's why I'm like, how how like much are these levels remixed? I know I played one of the newer ones because they added like four, I think, n- brand new ones. Uh, yeah. And I, I identified one of them. I was like, this is pretty cool. Like, I'm nice. digging this. Was and... it
1: Studiopolis? Is you know? that a new it, one? With like the TVs and, all yeah. this, and the glass and stuff. There's that one. I like yeah, that one. Yeah, There's yeah. the saloon
4: one. That yes. one's cool. Oh my yeah. gosh, so beautiful. So yeah, yeah like yeah, yeah. I think I do enjoy... like. Uh, just, like a, like, a new Sonic game? Yeah. I don't think it's yeah. too much as, like, maybe I don't even like the older aspects of it. It's just, like, I like this, like, the newer take on it. Yeah. Um, it is interesting. Like, okay, yeah, I want to let you answer the original question I asked, which is, sure. like, the remix, How like, how much are they remixed? But it is like curious that like the two best Sonic games in the last what like fifteen to twenty years are like remixes <laughs> are pandering of like oh, projects. Pa- yeah, they're pandering, Pander and, projects. and, and yeah. they're they're definitely. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. I yeah. was
1: like, I can't top that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in my opinion, the remixes are respectful ones. Like, they're not like the original R&B song with like a rap verse tossed in before the last bridge mm-hmm. but like they're like <laughs> that just came to my mind randomly like just that. now like that. but they're they're more like oh shoot there's like a new instrumental like they're like an original Bad Boy remix so that went over people's heads probably <laughs> so the the they what they do is like all of these different elements from stages are there so it's almost like they reached into like the asset kit from, like, the original uh, chemical plant zone, Mm -hmm. Um, but they completely rearrange them. And some things are similar, like, oh, yeah, I remember having to jump to that platform and then wait for it to reach the other side, you know what I mean? Or, uh, but the enemies, some of the enemies are new, like, actually, a lot of the enemies are new, you know what I mean? There are a lot of tricks that you don't expect, which is, like, part of... The kind of like sonic language of game design that I think a lot of people lost, and um, you don't really know where you're going to go you know there there's a lot of preservation of of things that nobody was paying attention to, like everyone was so focused on Sonic and what he does and not the stage and how it how complex it can be or how yeah. frustrating it can be yeah. so um the 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 remixes are really good. I'll say that, like, so some of the things that kind of stood out to me that speaks to some of the things you said were um, staying away from the idea that it's just about keeping Sonic running. Uh, The 16 by 9 aspect ratio was really good because, I mean, like you were saying earlier, how the screen was more zoomed in on Sonic. So there was really it was it was harder to really tell what was coming and you can you make a lot of mistakes. I found having that aspect ratio actually reduced mistakes a little bit because the field of view is the same, but you have more on the left on the right. Right. Um, and then 60 frames per second also like kind of adds to that. So we kind of had like hardware advancements that we didn't have before. Um, the placements of traps and gimmicks with like rings as lures, the, they created this like, I can't believe you did that to me. That like, that frustrates you, mm-hmm. but for some reason the community loves. So like, it's oh, kind of like, got me. <laughs> yeah, there's just a lot of people like their coffee black in that way. I guess that's mm-hmm. all it is. Right. You know what I mean? Um, there's a new but familiar event so like there's the heli- the helicopter chase at the end of chemical Plan zone mm-hmm. harkens back to like a battleship chase and and some people might call this like safe you know what i mean because it's like oh i've done this before this is just a different coat of paint but i think it's stuff that people really people really liked um this the same thing kind of goes for enemies uh a lot of attacks that we weren't expecting um, moving right is not the goal. And that's what I always felt set Sonic apart from other platformers. Mm-hmm. It's not, I just keep moving right until I'm done. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to move left for a while. I'm going to jump down things for a while. I don't actually know if I made a wrong turn somewhere, but I hope yeah. I just run past the little spinny sign. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, that was soon a big thing. The new the new attack they added wasn't about Flash. The drop dash, did you try that? Yeah. Did you find yourself using that? Like
4: I was like, this is useful, and I forgot to Use it. Use but it. <laughs> I was like, this would be useful if I remembered to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like in Splinter Cell where you, you can do like the leg, uh, like sit over top a hallway. I'm like, this yeah. is cool. I'm never gonna use it. <laughs> Yeah.
1: At, at, at this point, it feels like our lexicon is so used to not having additional stuff that the fact they added it, it's like cool, but I am still true. gonna finish it, you know? Yeah. For someone new, essentially what it does is you jump and it, it when you jump stationary and hit it, it just puts you straight into a spin dash forward. So the idea is that you can keep going fast without yeah. having to wait. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Uh, so I thought that was pretty uh, valuable, I guess. Um, and in a Sonic 3 and Knuckles kind of fashion, the replayability with Tails and Knuckles and unlocking different parts of the stage by able, by either being able to fly with Tails or glide with Knuckles is like a super like big thing. There are detractors. And what I'll say about the detractors is that... Um, I feel like these are things that they included because hashtag nostalgia. But what we learn about nostalgia is that just because it reminds us of an old thing doesn't mean it was necessarily good practice. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and uh, uh, man, that sounds like I'm like slamming like the developer and what they did. I'm not slamming, but it's some, but I'm I'm making a point. I'm making a point of like carrying over everything in general is sort of like is not always safe because sometimes there are mistakes that people enjoyed anyway. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So, uh, and I guess for those, like, I think about the pilot plane stages where, like, you're Sonic standing on, like, a plane that Tails is piloting and, like, you press up to go up and down to go down and, like, you move around and, like, Sonic, like, looks up and crouches down. It always felt weird and it never felt like normal controls because you're not supposed to be controlling a plane. Mm -hmm. And having that in there was super weird you fall and die and it's just all sorts of kind of like uh weird stuff the it, it's i'd say that the 3d bonus levels uh the controls are kind of strange and they're strange and
4: they're totally like i remember the 3d <laughs> levels of sonic cd where i'm like like, how you have to like jump very, like, maybe a little bit later than you think because it's like fake 3D. Yeah, exactly. And they totally brought that back. I'm yeah, like, they okay, did. Let's, let's do this again. Right.
1: Guess. <laughs> and, th- and that's where the Sega Saturn Limited, like, so it looks paper mache, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which is cool. The style is cool. I like that. I hope that comes back. Like, just PlayStation 1 graphics. I hope that comes back. <laughs> like, but like, we have the 16
4: bit retro. It's like, yeah. let's do the 32 bit. Let's go. <laughs>
1: exactly, dude. I, um, collision detection is the thing that it's not a matter of it feeling weird. But collision detection is a bit uh it's a bit strange. It it doesn't always work. Um but outside of that, like, you know, collecting emeralds and all that other stuff is uh is pretty cool. It's funny to like think about like
4: um whether like whether it's like, am I just getting tricked by fan service or is it actually good? <laughs> and like I think that's like a thing going like it's a trend right now where it's like Oh for sure. Man, there's Twin Peaks and Will and Grace <laughs> and Star Wars and Blade Runner just came out last week and it bombed because they <laughs> rebooted a uh, uh, you know a blockbuster Did that it bombed. Not do well? It got like thirty million, but they like spent like one hundred fifty or something like that on it, like an absurd amount. Whoa! Which is like it's it's apparently really great, and it's like everyone's like it's gonna become a cult classic. It's like I, you know. The original one failed, too. I yeah. mean, it's obviously, like, a cult classic, but it, it failed, too. Um, so it's, like, oh, it's not that surprising, I guess. Like,
1: <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if we're, like, we can have cult classics anymore. Because, like, we're kind of post-scarcity. We're, like, there's, like, all the – like, there's, like, ten things mm-hmm. that we can see. And it's, like, that's what art is. You know what I mean? Now, like, everyone kind of finds their own weird
4: – Yeah, there's always some weird – Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But, but it's weird with, like, films and stuff. It's, like um, – I guess, like, when it's going to be projected in a theater, like, you have, like, great stories like Get Out, where it's like they don't spend oh that much gosh. money yeah, on it and it, they, yeah. it blows up, but, like, um, and then it becomes
1: the highest grossest fil- grossing yeah, film. But like- they don't
4: learn. It's still like, no, let's just go back to the well kind of thing, which, right, which is like, it's like good and bad because, so, like, I watched. Twin Peaks when I was in my 20s and it's like I do have that like nostalgic feeling which is like weird because I didn't watch as a kid but I'm like oh, wood panel walls and they smoke inside which is like probably not good I wouldn't enjoy that but I like watching it on TV it's kind (laughs) of cool and Star Wars is like a formative thing for me and so like I'm you know I'm really excited for the eighth one and I loved the 7th one even though right. i know it like you know harken back to people talk to, about
1: the formula yeah. that it copied verbatim i'm, I'm yeah.
4: curious to know this is i think this is like a good question when it comes to uh whether you like fan service or if if or if it's like you just like maybe you enjoy i don't know maybe i'm like projecting my own thoughts on it but <laughs> i it's funny to see if people prefer force awakens versus rogue one cuz for Ooh. me the way i look at it Oh,
1: actually, real quick, what do you prefer? (laughs) How dare you? What? (laughs) (laughs) How dare you do that? Make you pick one. Well, okay, okay, okay. It's a a psychological question. I'm going to respond to your rude question with a Y-Splitter response. So, like, I just made up that term, but think about it. You'll know what it means. So, like, The Force Awakens, um, I a hundred percent appreciate because of the sort of tried and true formula that it has. That feels like magic still to this day. Mm-hmm. However, the revolutionary undertones of what Rogue One did with regards to storytelling, white hat versus black hat, like, like who's a good guy? Who's a bad guy? Well, it all comes down to motive. They're casting like all of these things. Um, I feel like made it revolutionary and, and therefore like amazing in its own regard. And it's hard to, you see why split it splits both ways. Like it's hard to, I'm trying to recover a really bad response. The, the, I, it, it, they really stand on their own. Okay. I am, I am O. See, we're going to, we're going to split here. <laughs>
4: Cause I don't know. Um, man, I love Star Wars, but I don't know how much I liked Rogue One. And a lot of I, I definitely see like, I'm like, oh, an X-wing. That's exciting, like, and that's really like, cool. <laughs> and, Like, I definitely have that. But um, there's part of me that's like, maybe that's like too much. Like, I think maybe I'm like, maybe I'm being too distracted by, you know, them having Darth Vader at the end or something like that. Um, yeah. Where it's like, do I like this or I don't? Uh, especially for that, like, I think like just in general, as, like, a film. For me, it's like, ah, first half wasn't great kind of thing. But, like, Force Awakens, like you said, it really, that's, like, the word I would use. Is like, it feels magical. Yeah. And I really... It feels
1: magical, but... It's funny, it feels magical. However, it feels magical purely because it does something that we know intimately. Like, Mm -hmm. isn't that weird? The whole part of magic is that it's mystery, Mm -hmm. but... It followed a formula of a thing? It did follow a formula. A new hope. See, I'm, this is this is <laughs> But it's me. still magic.
4: Yeah, you want me to do some mental gymnastics of me going like, no, it's great. uh, what? Is, uh <laughs> I think what they were trying to do, whether they succeeded or not, is like you have the character Rey who believes in these myths and like longs for this fantasy kind of thing. And um, it becomes like a reality. And she – Follows in the footsteps of what Luke Skywalker does and New Hope, so it's like she is going. To, she's like now this like myth in this fantasy that has that like nostalgic element so it's of like I'm for yeah you. yeah. So you see how like no so that's I got why you. I, and like, there is there
1: are new things. I don't want to make it seem like it's not and they didn't think and da da da. Not not at all. I loved it. I love J.J. Abrams. I thought it was great. I don't think that he's the inferior director. Anyway. I don't think either of them are. I think mm-hmm. they're both great in their own Oh, record. yeah. Uh, I will say you're onto something with Rogue Run, Rogue One and sort of like these, like, oh, there's an X-Wing, da-da-da-da, there's Darth Vader. Do I really like this? I think about that. There's that guy with that face. Yeah. That, we, uh, who, whatever his name is. We definitely neurologically do that, where there are, like, certain things that redeem an otherwise different story that we might not normally enjoy. Because mm-hmm. I think about that with Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy 13, universally pans <laughs> because – it was – people call it Final Hallway 13 because, mm-hmm. like, it was very handholdy. You could only go, like, a certain amount of directions. It was very narrative-driven, not much exploration, all this other stuff, like, the fighting system people didn't like. To which my critique is always if this – if it were not called Final Fantasy, you would not have a problem with this title mm-hmm. at all. Because it's literally about your expectations not being met. Mm-hmm. That Because on its own, it is a polished – like, it is a po- – it's polished. I it's f- Square Enix. Found it's polished. It, like,
4: I was like, I'm – you know I'm engaged, I'm getting through it like, yeah like, exactly, like yeah,
1: but people were like, but i did I did open world twelve other times, so therefore this is a fault of thirteen, but it's not it's mm-hmm. just a completely new direction, yeah, and like yeah so i i I feel like we definitely do do that mm-hmm. with with things nostalgia' funny, you know,
4: yeah. you know what's weird like I think I just mentioned it with Twin Peaks, but like th- it's a thing of like um a lot of times like uh. I'll be nostalgic, but it's because, like, the artist is, like, going for it and is trying to, like, evoke that sort of emotion without it being, like, I lived that already or it's, like, reminding me of something I went through. Like, there's two bands I'm listening to a lot is Pup and Remo Drive. They're both really great. Pup's great. Yeah. And a lot of times when I'm listening to it, like, it hits me with, like, that kind of bittersweet, like, you kind of, like, think back to your childhood or something like that. And that's not, like, oh... It's it's something I played before, or something I heard before, or something like that. It's like no, they're going for that emotion and hitting certain nice melodies that like yeah. hit me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I think that's like an element, but it is interesting to separate fan service and maybe like the cynical like trying to use it, um, you know, to uh,
1: over and compensate. Uh, like faults or... I think it's definitely got to be both. Like when you ask that question, like, is this fan service or is it like... I don't remember exactly what it was. Do you remember what it was? Like, is it fan service or is I it something else? I have a terrible Is it fan service or is it something... Or is it legitimately like... Is it legitimately good, right. And, and it's sort of like, I think it's always going to be both. Like when mm. you think about Sonic Mania, um, it is made by somebody who was a legitimate fan of the Sonic series in its heyday, right? So it's only natural that he's going to adopt and value the mechanical elements that he enjoyed when he was younger. So you can call it fan service, but it was made by somebody who enjoyed that in the first place. So it almost just seems like it's all kind of a part of this legacy that has to do with liking things because they are what they are, and then also like bringing them back because it gives you a really nice feeling. Yeah. You know? So
4: Well, there's that element of like well, if I do like it, I like it, you know, like right. you, it's, it's like, you don't need to justify what you like. Yeah. I guess if you extrapolate it outside of entertainment and you bring it to like, like an election we had where it's like, we take that and like, it becomes, um, a way to, you know, garner support or something like that. Like that's, where you can, like, that's, like, the interesting aspect of where you can oh, take nostalgia yeah. kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, and that's probably, that's the fault of nostalgia. I mean, that's where the danger comes in. Specifically with politics, you're, you're dealing with people's lives. Politics reduced, mm. like, in its most reductionist sense, politics is the arrangements of bodies and spaces. You know what I mean? And when you have that and you have powers governing that, like, for example, like the fetishization of 1948... Mm-hmm. Um, neglects the the sentiment around it that I don't understand because I'm not from then, you know what I mean? Like, the sentiment of that, like, neglects to remember the people that suffered in order for some of the luxuries of that time to exist, yeah. you know what I mean? There's and, history books written
4: about it, yeah. Right,
1: and when you try to hold that up, um, that becomes problematic. And even with history books, you think about history books, like, the history that gets through is the one that's attached to the power mm. of the time, you yeah. know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. So, like... The, the history books going that. so in that sort of regard, it becomes very complicated. and we're talking about video games. So we're totally <laughs>
4: <laughs> Well actually, what we can do is talk to someone that studies nostalgia, uh, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk to Dr. Tim Wildshut He's an associate professor within psychology at the University of Southampton. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us. Uh, just to start out, can you tell us, you know, just in a very general sense, what is nostalgia and what is the particular emotion we feel when uh, talking about nostalgia?
2: Mm-hmm. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with
1: such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500
2: beers at always low prices. Cheers! Cheers! Uh, Nostalgia is defined as a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past. It's uh, an emotion that we experience when we recall past experiences, um, often ones involving close others and momentous events like weddings or verbs, graduations. When we think about these events and recall them, we experience longing. Uh, We may even want to go back to the past. And as a result, we feel sentimental, most often happy, but with a tinge of sadness.
1: Um, for for the the context of what we've sort of been discussing lately um, we've been talking about nostalgia and it's sort of marriage with uh, with video games now you don't you don't need to be well averse in like video games or play them themselves to sort of follow along but um, we were we were kind of talking about a uh, a recent remake of this retro game that came out in the early '90s, and uh, the early '90s are retro, and and this remake of this game and there's a lot of excitement about it because it's sort of like a return to form as people remember it. You know what I mean? Whether it's good or bad, it kind of has its, it brings along its baggage with it as well. Uh, now, I mean, panning out from this, this is sort of a part of a bigger cultural phenomenon. There hasn't been a original intellectual property, f- like blockbuster film, since. I mean, Pacific Rim, as far as entertainment goes, is probably like. One of the one of the only ones, but we have so many remakes that take the forefront. I mean, just, I just saw the trailer for Star Wars, and, like, I'm very, very stoked for it. But even that, it's, right, it's <laughs> some kind of resurrecting old intellectual property. Um, have you noticed within marketing, I mean, I guess just even, like, casually, like, looking at marketing strategies or some of these commercials, some of the ways that some of these, like, new movies or whatever, pop culture stuff, uh, whenever it sort of plays on nostalgia, how... Um, how people tend to go about it, how people tend to uh, maximize nostalgia strategically to get buy-in from people?
2: Um, well, I think nostalgia has uh, sort of a long history in, in marketing research. Um, before psychologists discovered the uh, the topic, um, people in, in marketing and consumer research were uh, studying nostalgia because they... Realize that individuals have a a lifelong preference for product styles that were popular during their teenage years. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think um, this is now quite well established. You know, people, when they try to um, market products, movies, games, to a particular segment they will try to find out which product styles were popular during um, the, you know, the youth or the, the early teens of those people in that particular segment. So you can tailor it quite specifically if you know someone's age, and where they grew up. That sounds pretty true. Yeah, I, mean, I, th-
1: I think about it. With uh, that makes me think about. You know, Matt, when, when you and I were growing up, I mean, we had Hey Arnold's which was like a popular show. I was one of them to bring it back, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To make it available to like purchase. Mm-hmm. And I realized it wasn't until we were all kind of like in our mid-20s. So it's like they brought it back when we all had jobs. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. we could like pay for our own stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
4: Do you see that as like a, a, a negative effect of it? Do you think nostalgia is good or is it, mm, you know, or is it a matter of like how it's used? It, like it could be used cynically.
2: Oh yeah, it can, it, it can definitely be used, uh, cynically or it, um, it's a powerful emotion. Um, and it can be harnessed in in different ways. Um, you know, it can be harnessed, um, for example, for nationalistic purposes, um, something that relevant, yeah, <laughs> something many people would consider, uh, a negative thing. Um, but it can also be harnessed for, um, you know, as we've uh, shown in some of our research for uh, charity and, and charitable donations. Um, it's, the, the reason is, I think, that nostalgia is just a, a powerful motivational force. It sort of offers a, a template of what things can be like. Um, the future, of course, is um, abstract, And uncertain and and doesn't necessarily provide a clear um, template um, for that reason. But when you look to the past, you can, you know, there's a lot of detail um, and uh, a lot of texture. It's very vivid and it, it provides a very clear image of what the future may look like or what you may want. Uh, the future uh, to look like and provides uh, in that way a, a very clear guideline for action and so on that's really interesting
1: it, it makes me think about um, do you feel that there are or do you know of any maybe like mental disorders or Um, conditions associated with maybe over romanticizing the past in a kind of way, because I I listen to what you're saying and it it sounds a lot like sometimes it feels like when, when I look back on the past, like sentiment helps my brain filter out all the negative things that happened at the time Mm -hmm. and just remember all the good and kind of memorable part. Can you speak to any, any of that?
2: Yeah. I think nostalgia is not necessarily accurate and it may be in. Idealized version of the past, um, you you sort of shape it and, and uh, distort it and rehearse maybe the positive aspects and forget about the negative aspects. What we've asked is, you know, given that we have these feelings and that, uh, about the past, what does it do for us? What does it do for the individual? So I think to to return to your question about whether it can be pathological, I'm sure it can. Can be um, any anything can be pathological if you do it to an extreme. I think if I, you know, were if I had to point to one um, thing, it's perhaps that nostalgia can produce some regret. But on balance, uh, it's a, it's a very valuable and significant uh, emotion.
4: Can you tell us about? Um... Uh, nostalgia historically i feel like i read that just the way different generations viewed it was kind of interesting to me that maybe it was looked at as even more of a negative just like as like a percept uh their perception of it was negative but now it's become more of we enjoy it a lot more and talk about it
2: yeah i think it's because for a long time nostalgia and homesickness were used interchangeably so the, the person who coined the phrase was a Swiss physician um, in the 17th century. He was, in, he was interested in Swiss mercenaries who would uh, serve for European monarchs, fights for France or Spain or what have you in, in various wars. Um, of course, the Vatican still has a Swiss guard. Um, so it dates back to that. Um, and uh, what Hofer, this, this physician, observed was that these uh, mercenaries would often feel very homesick, and they would, have, uh, would be unable to sleep and lose their appetite and become anxious and depressed, and he termed that nostalgia or Heimweh, or homesickness. Um, and so since then, the two, Heimweh Homesickness and Nostalgia, have been used interchangeably. And it's only very recently that they've gone sort of their separate paths um, in the psychological literature. Um, much of that was due to um, the work of uh, Fred Davis, a sociologist, and he found that when he interviewed students he that they associated nostalgia really with warmth and childhood, and positive memories, whereas homesickness had to do with more desire to return to a, you know, a physical place. I think, uh, as like
4: a, a final question, I think we touched on it, but like, could you tell us about your research and, um, you know, what, what, what you've, uh, ultimately found from it?
2: Well, I think, our research ranges uh from a very specific uh
4: the way we're looking at it is like relating you know homesickness or childhood or people we knew with yeah. like these like digital artifacts
2: kind of thing yeah. and associating
4: yeah. with with that with is that would that be like an accurate reason why if I play Mario I might be reminded of my brother or something like that
2: yeah that's exactly it that, that makes perfect sense when you think about that. Is really quite a remarkable uh, mechanism or process because it it requires so many so many prerequisites for that that you have a sense of self and a sense of that you're the same person that you were back then. Um. So a sense of uh, continuity of the self across time. Those are all quite uniquely um, human. capacities or, or abilities when you play a game to imagine your brother is there with you it's actually quite a remarkable thing yeah i had a i was actually
1: just on a i was catching up with a with an old friend in la and he was saying we were talking about different tv shows and he was saying like oh yeah i really wanted to uh finish uh frasier uh, I never I never really got to, like, some of the, the, the last episodes, you know, before it ended. But I'm having... A, I, I don't think I can actually do it because he had just got out of uh, a long-term, like, maybe, like, a five, six-year relationship with, with his boyfriend. He was like, that was the thing we watched together. So, like, when I watch it, it brings me to this place. And I think it's so funny how yeah. it has this grit, like, it, ob- on paper, objectively, it's just a show, yeah. right? And to just watch a narrative resolve in... The reductionistic way that it will, because it's Frasier, like, is not a threat in and of itself. But it's interesting that it's almost like this tome or like this uh, this artifact attached to to loved ones in our lives. Uh, one thing that um, I'm kind of curious to know is in your research and or maybe even in your personal notes, do you feel like there's an evolutionary uh, purpose or to or benefit of uh, nostalgia?
2: We don't have direct evidence for that, but um, I, I think that there has to be. Um, when, for example, you experience extreme starvation and there's nothing you can do about it, then you may imagine having a meal or you may think nostalgically oh. about meals that you had with your uh, family. Mm. Now, and it, it's, it doesn't solve it. But for may maybe you can last maybe you can last a minute longer, um and you know that in the in the grand scale of evolution um you know that can make a difference, or as Darwin called it, that can be a grain in the balance, you know, so even in evolution small small things can matter and add up um, across you know the the eons <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh,
1: when, when you said that, man, I immediately thought about, uh, Matt, do you know anything about, have you ever heard of spiral dynamics? Mm -mm. Okay. I'm not going to go there. There's no way. But like (laughs) for people who do, I went beige and there was like, there's like this moment I was, I was out canoeing and, um, with like a couple of friends and our canoe like flipped over and there's no way you can get it. Like once it rolls over, that's it. You're done. And we were out there floating on a flipped over canoe for like. The whole day, like the whole day, and we're like waiting for rescue boats to come or whatever. Like nobody knew we were gone. It was this whole thing. I can't unpack all the details, and I won't make. I tell you, won't make you sit through all of it. But um, I just remember towards the end of it, like maybe about like like nine hours into it, like just thinking about what it's like for my foot to be on a ground. It sounds so <laughs> weird mm-hmm. and specific, like, but literally, it's like it's just like I just want my foot to touch the ground, and I started thinking about all these moments where I was just standing and like, that was enough
4: <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of like yeah. hanging on the house.
1: And I wonder if there's just something about that type. maybe not at all, but <laughs>
4: I think I like, if I'm ever like uh, if I'm ever sick or something, I'm like, I wonder what it felt like to be normal. Like not, right. not being sick and it. having a sore throat. It's <laughs> yeah. like, that'd be great. Yeah. Like, <laughs>
2: that's
4: it. Yeah, that's it
1: yeah oh my yeah. gosh tim thank you so much <laughs> you've you've sent us da- in a in a poetic way you've sent us down memory memory lane <laughs> <You> <laughs> uh, so many stories just to gotta, um unfortunately because we're, we're sharing of time we can't talk about but um and questions as well this, this has <laughs> been amazing thank you so much yeah thank you so
4: much It was really enlightening
2: all right yeah my pleasure guys
1: up next, Eric
4: Kane and Paul Tassi talk gaming's new trend in generating revenue and driving gamers up the wall: loot boxes.
0: I'm Eric Kane, and I'm Paul Tassi,
3: and today we're going to be talking about loot boxes, which are infesting every game you play now. <laughs> uh, the concept's uh, kind of originated in mobile games, but since everyone saw that they make so much money, they have now been integrated into nearly all major console and PC games, uh, for the most part, uh, even titles that already cost $60 up front. And some people are saying this is kind of the end of the world and this is the companies, you know, being extra greedy and trying to milk money from players. Uh, another side, a smaller side, <laughs> sees this as a somewhat necessary uh, development based on kind of how games are made and how much they cost and stuff. So uh, which, which side are you on, Eric?
0: Well, um. I think first off let's let's just sort of talk about what what they are and how it works. What is the difference between a loot like loot boxes and sort of more traditional microtransactions?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. So in a traditional microtransaction, you can just kind of see an item in a store, like a digital item that you want for your character for whatever reason and just pay, you know, $3, $5, $10 for it. Um, and a lot of games have had that for a while or you can buy kind of extra missions like downloadable content packs for 10 or 15 dollars a loot box contains random items so in that case you are paying for the chance to hopefully get something you want um, from a rare drop it it essentially works like a slot machine (laughs) but since you're winning virtual items and not actual money it's it doesn't run afoul of actual kind of gambling restrictions in in most regions so that it is gambling right i mean it 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 really effectively gambling uh it is just you're not winning anything of value so of of true value you're spending money
0: (laughs) yeah you're spending money and you're you're you know basically at a slot machine it feels like a slot machine like in overwatch when i open that loot box and it it sort of shakes and then it explodes and there's lots of sound and light and all those little tokens go flying in the air and if you see a yellow streak of light, it means you got something really good. There is definitely that dopamine thing happening in your brain that's very, very, very much like pulling uh, the, the lever of a slot machine, right? Yeah,
3: it is a lot – like that, and I mean, I've, I've played some games where, like, there's a mobile game I play where you spin a crystal, and literally the contents of the crystal spin before your eyes, and it—that <laughs> is how a slot machine works. That is literally it. <laughs> um, yeah. So in that regard, it does kind of offend people's sensibilities because they kind of feel preyed upon, but it works, and it's legal, and it's making people a lot of money. So the the question usually comes down to how it's handled, whether the stuff in loot boxes is something that kind of interferes with the game where, you know, if people can kind of buy enough boxes, they're going to get more powerful and be able to beat their opponents or whether it's kind of just more items that don't affect gameplay, like a skin for your character, like a costume or something like that. And we're kind of all over the map at this point with who is doing what. <laughs> in terms of loot boxes. So it, it's a little bit of a murky conversation, but there are, there are examples of it being kind of okay and like not really a big deal, but then also many instances where it's like, uh, that's kind of pushing things too far.
0: Yeah. I find myself very conflicted over the question. I, I won't lie. I, so I, you know, I've developed something of a, you know, an addiction to collecting skins in overwatch uh, I think you can probably relate to this a little bit um, with your, you know, annual or your, you know, I don't even not annual, but you, you do a, a loot box opening every time there's a new event in Overwatch, and I I usually do right. one myself, but not not publicly. I just you know go and buy some loot boxes and, and open them, and I, I feel like it's a little exploitative. You know, I feel like. I should just I, – I think that maybe if there was a way to get gold just by playing the game, I would feel less exploited. But even though the items in the loot boxes don't impact gameplay, I feel like it's it's a bit of an exploitation not being able to just buy what I want and having to rely on random gambling mechanics to get it. Well, and part, partly that's because yeah. for a long time, I was – I mean I know they've changed this a little bit. But you'd get a lot of duplicate items and, the, and they are never worth as much as they are to buy them with gold, which means that you're, you're getting all these – you're spending real money to get repeat items and then you can't use those repeat items to just trade for something of, of uh, the same value. And so you really – I really do feel like – and this kind of came to a head with their recent uh, – like their a- uh, anniversary skins where there were just so many new skins to get. There was almost no way to do it without spending a lot of money. After that,
3: they kind of walked stuff back. So now what happens is you no longer get legendary duplicates. Or if you do, it's like an incredibly rare chance in in there and Hearthstone. So their solution was they kind of realized that they pushed the envelope too far. And now they're kind of walking it back because they realize if people get too upset and if they feel too cheated, they're not going to buy and they're not going to keep playing the game. So there, there is a really kind of fine tightrope they have to walk. But now other games are starting to do really weird things where, I mean, the cosmetic question alone is, is one thing. But now we're getting to a game like Shadow of Mordor, where it's a single player RPG. You're a Lord of the Rings dude going around the map, like killing orcs and making orcs work for you and stuff. But there's loot boxes in that game. And it's like, OK, well, what, what's in the loot boxes like skins and stuff like that and yeah but also just the stuff you're flat out looting in the game like there are just weapons to use in single player and you can get orcs which are like really powerful soldiers uh, from loot boxes and the the game is, is pitching this like oh well you know you have options like you can find these things in game or you can visit the, you know, mithril store or whatever they're calling it. But it, in that instance, that really feels like it's taking something away from the game, just kind of offering a a shortcut that does not feel good if you take it. And it's just like kind of trying to prod people into that. And, And the problem with something like that is, okay. If, if this box is offering me some legendary item or some legendary orc soldier, is the game reducing the chances that I can get that in the game myself? Otherwise, like like what would this be like if this system wasn't in place? And that's a question we don't know and we won't know until the game is out. But that that's one example where lately it feels like the line is really being pushed to a point where it's, it's it's even more uncomfortable than just kind of debating the merits of, of cosmetic skins and whatnot.
0: Right. Because that mean, for one thing, that's blatantly pay to pay to win. I mean, it is a single-player game, so that becomes less of sort of an There's ethical a multiplayer
3: issue. Component, I think, but yeah, but the fact that you, it's, it's just, in that sense, it's almost like paying for randomized cheat codes, which right, is it's weird. a cheat code thing, absolutely, yeah. And so it's, it's just a very strange kind of situation to be in. And I, I personally, I don't have as much of a problem with the Overwatch stuff as as you do, just because it's cosmetic. But I, I do think they went too far, which is why they had to kind of rein it in, and. It, it still does feel somewhat weird because, again, even, even something like skins, that's something you used to be able to unlock if you beat a game, you know, achieved X thing in a game, unlock this outfit or whatever. And now all of that is just kind of being sold in a store for random mm-hmm. chance. Like, it's it's very strange.
0: You uh, wrote recently about Destiny 2's uh, loot, basically their version of loot boxes, and you said you weren't particularly upset by those. Why is that? those ones i'm still i'm still
3: sorting it out and something happened today that made me maybe change my mind a little bit um the reason i didn't have a huge problem with those initially was because a it was mostly cosmetic stuff like ships that don't really do anything and like a couple pieces of armor in a game that has thousands of pieces of armor like things like that um so that was stuff to me that it didn't seem like that big of a deal. of like, okay, X player wants to pay two hundred dollars to try and hunt for some legendary ship, you know, knock yourself out. Like you're subsidizing <laughs> the game for the rest of us. Um, and on top of that, you earn these engrams in game. It's it's a little like Overwatch, where over time with experience you will get your own pay you know paid engram just just through play. So that seemed okay to me. Uh, what I learned today is that the XP cap, every time you earn one of these goes up. So the next time it costs even more. And what I haven't found this out yet, I have have an outgoing question to Bungie to ask about this is, is there a cap? Or like, are we going to be playing the game a year from now, and it takes 100 times the experience? Because when I wrote that it was, I was getting these fairly often. And I'm like, okay, this is fine. Like this, you know, I, I can see why you might want to pay to get more faster, but I'm, I'm earning these at a decent clip. But now it's like they're getting longer and longer, so I'm, I'm a little more on the fence now.
0: But well, Which is very similar to Overwatch also, in that in the beginning of that game, as you start to level up, you get loot boxes fairly frequently, but then it takes longer and longer and longer to level up as you get higher and higher level.
3: The difference being there is definitely a cap there, I think at like 22,000 experience. So at, yeah. it, at some point it does level off and then it resets when you kind of prestige and then you earn a few fast ones again but
0: but it's certainly kind of that's another way of it feels exploitative to me because when you're getting those loot boxes at first, quite frequently you you enjoy getting them and it creates this I, this little trigger in your brain where that's that's a reward you've, you've been getting and the, and you like getting that reward and then once it slows down, well now is when you're more tempted to go and purchase. Because you liked getting that reward before and now you've got that in it. You know, it's kind of, you know, I know that that's how they make money, but also, well, that's, you know, that's they're question selling you the games.
3: You know, like is, is it, like, is it okay? Like, can they get away with it? And, like, even knowing that it's kind of an exploitative system, like, can you blame them for doing it? And this, this is what leads into the question of, okay, games have stayed... for I don't know 20 years 15 years now and but production budgets keep going up there's inflation like costs to make games are astronomically high particularly these big budget AAA games which is now where you see all these loot boxes coming up so now you have a company where originally we were having this debate about DLC whether DLC was kind of morally acceptable or whether people were carving things out of games to put into DLC now we've all kind of moved on past that And we're almost wishing for more DLC instead of loot boxes because that was at least, okay, you're buying a concrete thing. This is gambling. But the problem from the developer's end is, you know, you have a a game like destiny where Bungie can, I mean, they're still developing DLC, but you know, are they going to spend thousands of hours and, you know, so much money building all these new levels and missions and blah, 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 when they will probably end up making more money from loot boxes because, they're a really expensive and b kind of limitless for the the top, you know, spending players that want to buy them. So, it, I feel like this is spreading so quickly because it's so profitable. And we're talking about, you know, Blizzard and Overwatch and all that, and their digital revenues have just gone through the roof in the past year, and that is due to Overwatch loot boxes and yep. Hearthstone. So, from the player's perspective, the options are to not buy them at all and feel really left behind, but make a principled stand or just accept the system either by not paying and try to earn things normally or by paying and just splurging every so often if you feel like it. So that is kind of a heated debate within the community of what, of what players should be doing, but it is clear what they are doing and what they are doing is buying these loot boxes, regardless of what they're saying.
0: Right. And I think, so one, one distinction that's important is that for overwatch all the DLC is free. So if a new character comes out, or a new map comes out, or a new mode, or whatever, that is all free of charge to anyone who's purchased the game. Uh, and their entire uh, revenue stream post you know post launch is based on loot boxes. Uh, the difference between that and something like Destiny or Call of Duty or a number of other games is that there there are paid DLCs for each of these games. So you know Destiny will have Destiny Two will almost certainly have three or four DLC. Uh, expansions, and I guarantee at least one of those will almost be required to buy, like the Taken King was. If you want to keep playing the game, you know, with any sort of community around you, uh. So, so it's a little for me, you know, it's a little easier to forgive the loot boxes in Overwatch, even though they annoy me sometimes, because I know I'm going to get all this stuff for free afterwards, anyways. Well, you can
3: even get into some kind of murky territory with that too, because like, okay, so Battlefront Two is coming up. And that has they're like, oh, it's free DLC and all the maps and heroes and stuff are gonna be free from here on out because they got so much backlash last time about the super expensive season pass that essentially cost what a $100, 120 dollars to make the game feel complete with all the extra content. Yeah. The caveat is that the new monetization system is loot boxes. And not just loot boxes, but loot boxes that unlock I don't know what they're called, but like some sort of specific perks for your character that are like the epic or legendary version of X-Move or you know whatever you can do in the game that you equip to your character. So that one definitely seems like that has yeah. the potential to be buying power if someone can spend a bunch of money on loot boxes and instantly unlock all the top tier stuff if they're getting lucky. So that's, even with free D- DLC there, that's like, uh, I don't know if that's going to work out.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you never, see, there's two huge sins for multiplayer games that, that I can see. And one is pay to win. So anything, to, anytime you offer some sort of microtransaction, loot box, whatever it may be, where you can pay a little extra to get an advantage over other people in the game, that is a big no-no. The other one, which we see a lot of uh, in Call of Duty is kind of the, the poster boy here, is that paid maps DLC uh, splinters the community. So every time the new DLC lands and there's new maps... Only the people who buy those maps end up getting to play them, and then the community gets uh, gets uh, fractured and uh, ghettoized. And so, there's these are two issues that are kind of something that all publishers have to think about. And so, you know, with with uh, with something like you were just talking about, they're gonna they're gonna be able to avoid the fracturing and the splintering of the community, which is good, but. Then they 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 run that that pay to win risk and so really finding the happy medium between those two again I'm going to go back to Overwatch I think they do a great job here they do not sell anything that gives you an advantage in game yeah not do even they close. Yeah, I don't not even one known. thing it's just skins and emotes and things like but that better, and that
3: better be, camouflage using certain skin but yeah that's <laughs>
0: not I and mean, there's not really camouflage in right. Overwatch though <laughs> I mean yeah Soldier seventy six has a pretty cool like camouflage skin. I've got that one. But (laughs) it just is fun to have those skins. And even when I complained about how they were at one point implementing loot boxes, at least I never feel like someone is buying their way to the top. And at least I never feel like I'm going to be left out of the community because I don't have those maps. So, you know, if I were to hold up an example of a pretty good system, it would be Overwatch. And most other systems have one or the other of these flaws. Like Call of Duty, it has loot boxes that I think are mostly just uh, uh cosmetic stuff but it's um, still doing map packs so <laughs> but it's still doing map packs and of course and the, really the loot boxes in call of duty are just not that that big of a deal honestly but they're not they're not as prominent like skins and stuff aren't nearly as big of a deal i think as overwatch but but yeah they they have a 50 dollars season pass and they have four different map packs every year and that absolutely diminishes the quality of the community and that's a real shame
3: yeah for sure
0: and then there's, the, you know, we haven't even talked about this, and we probably don't have time today. But then there's the entire the whole like Steam, like Counter Strike, uh, and where you can
3: gamble for, for skins where with, from like on top like of there. boxes. Yeah, that's yeah, it, it is. That's a whole other Honestly, level. Where yeah. I think I think that's been mostly shut down at this point, which is good. But that is kind of the natural evolution of this sort of mm-hmm. thing. Where eventually it does can like when when you're able to transfer items between people, then you get a black market and like kind of off-book gambling for those items which is a whole that that is very clearly like way over the line and something that was so over the line even Valve itself had to shut it down. So that was <laughs> hopefully we don't keep seeing more of that, but I would not be surprised.
0: Well, and and I think another interesting um not quite the same example but uh Diablo 3 when they when that game launched had a you had the ability to you know get loot and then buy and sell loot within the game the to other players house. the auction the house heartbreaking
3: yeah. auction house
0: yes and that and that it,
3: was a problem because that wasn't loot boxes that was just microtransactions where you just pay x dollars for x item in this virtual auction house and blizzard's idea there was to combat black market selling that was going to happen anyway but instead it created a game where you could just buy stuff instead of killing monsters and playing the game. And that was always the more efficient thing to do. So it ruined the game for about a year and a half until they just decided, forget it, like we're killing it and you can no longer trade items. And it made the game 10,000% better.
0: Yeah. And so this is a good example, I would say, of just how risky any kind of revenue stream system can be to the game. I think you can look at a lot of mobile games also and just see that, a lot of times the, the inclusion of microtransactions changes the way a game is even designed and played. And, and so that's the real risk, I think, also is that these games, the, the inclusion of loot boxes, the inclusion of this kind of system of can affect how the game itself is designed. And, and it can, it can be, it, once it becomes the point of the game, which is the case with a lot of mobile games, it, it can break those games. And so it's, it's something that I, that I hope I really do hope that these developers and especially the publishers are thinking about and are being cautious with because it's a slippery slope.
3: It is, but if they keep making as much as they've been making, I would not see too many 180 degree turns coming up in the future. Very,
0: very slippery slope the more money they make. (laughs) Well, cool. Uh, uh, Once again, thanks for listening. Uh, Let us know what you think uh, about this subject and uh, we'll talk to you next week.
4: That's it for this episode of Overworld. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes.
1: If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast1. One, that's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L.
4: And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More.
2: Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me,
1: nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and
0: 2,500 beers
1: at always low
0: prices. Cheers! I'm Ed Donahue.